0: So tonight we're going to talk about uh, the creation, and we began last week with an introduction to the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be talking about day one of creation. So day one of creation is going to be uh, setting the stage for the rest of the days of creation, and hopefully with God's help, we will have wisdom enough to to figure out and uh, be able to inspired to do his will because of it. So I'll just start with Genesis chapter 1, 1, and uh, we'll look at the first verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And may God be blessed and his word be blessed as we have it read into our hearts today. So in, in doing our study, uh, I think it's helpful for, for us to actually look at these verses one by one and to be able to look at the different theories about, what these verses mean, how they have been interpreted historically, but I think more importantly is that we should try to take what the Bible says and interpret the Bible with the Bible. I find this is the best means of interpretation with Jesus being the chief uh, author of the Bible himself and Jesus being the chief interpreter of the Bible, and I think he's the most healthy person to listen to we can be assured that Genesis was written by Moses because uh, we know that Jesus himself attributed the Bible to what Moses said. And this is, of course, what Jesus our Lord said. There's all kinds of theories about the first five books of the Bible, but I think those theories have fallen out of favor with many who are Christian uh, due to the fact that they tend to deny the actual supernatural nature of the scriptures to begin with. But we will stick with what is the basic understanding of the ancient Hebrews and of Jesus, the disciples, and we're gonna stick with that That Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible as the essential author of it, as he was inspired by God. However, Moses was not around at the beginning. In fact, nobody else was around when the original creation was created because God is the one who has to tell us this story. I mean, how did Moses know this if God had not told him? So only if God the creator told him what was going on would he ever have figured this out we would not have figured out the seven days of creation. We would not have understood why it is that the number seven as the days of the week were established almost as a really a universal principle of time. And yet we now know by the Bible that the reason why weeks and months and years and the way they work are due to the original setting forth of God's plan. So we look here in Genesis one, of course, says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We also talked about last week that the angels were created with the heavens and the earth itself, and they witnessed God's work on the earth during this creation process. So they were in existence, which of course brings us to a question. What about the devil? Where did he come from? How do we know anything about him? And what is the best sources for understanding about him? Well, we know some things about the devil. We know that he was the first murderer. You know, we teach children oftentimes and you read the Bible and the first recorded murder is uh, supposedly Cain killing his brother Abel. That's not what Jesus said. He said that, that the devil was the author, the, the, the a murderer from the beginning. He was the one who sh- was the first murderer. Think about that. So who did he kill? I think that God blamed the devil even more than Adam and Eve for the death of Adam and Eve. Because remember, had the devil not tempted Eve, there would not have been the, uh, the sin. Uh, but God also allowed things to happen according to his plan, and we'll get into that later. So let's let's talk about who the devil is and was and how we can even figure these things out. And uh, we'll start with a couple, there's two very important passages, Ezekiel chapter 28 and then Isaiah 14. And if we look in the middle of the Old Testament and even past Isaiah and everything, we'll see Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, these, this passage by in Ezekiel is very, um, how shall I say it, illuminating because it is a, a very strange passage. It's strange because while it is a, talking about an earthly king. And same thing with Isaiah. It has statements made about it that cannot be made about people, okay? That's the reason why we have this knowledge about the origin of Satan. Uh, we, By the way, Satan is called Satan in the book of Job, perhaps the oldest book that was written in the entire Bible. And, and we also learn his name, as Lucifer in these passages, and we learn a little bit about him. So we're going to uh, begin here in Ezekiel 28, 12, because the origin of Satan is important to this story because he just pops in later, and you wonder, well, where did he come from? I think it's healthy to know about him. So Ezekiel 28, 12, son of man, that's what uh, Ezekiel was called quite often. The Son of Man. That's also a phrase Jesus will adopt uh, in, in his humanity, uh, will be emphasized in books like Luke's gospel, especially. But he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. So so far it sounds like a normal prophecy. These prophecies were given to the prophets. And God will give it to them, and then they have to speak about it to some earthly king or some country or somebody, some group of people. But when when we think about Tyre, you should know that it was a Phoenician city. It was one of the lead Phoenician cities. They were called Phoenicians because of their selling of the purple dye that they were able to get from a certain shellfish and because of their business dealings, which they were experts in trade and in business. So they were rich, very wealthy, and this wealth created through the generations their superiority. In fact, they spread colonies across North Africa, and even Carthage is a Phoenician colony, and that was located uh, just south of, of Italy in what today would be, I guess, Tunisia, But the the colony of Carthage was one of the most famous colonies of the Phoenicians. So they were a Mediterranean-wide power, worldwide and uh, known for their success and money and riches. And uh, in fact, it's ironic that uh, David, years earlier, years before Ezekiel's talking here, had befriended the king of Tyre, Hiram, and this friendship was a good friendship, So good was it that David was able to employ the king of Tyre to get his materials and experts to build his palaces and to build the temple itself with the best material available. So he didn't spare any expenses. Now, so the king of Tyre here is addressed, but what is said about him cannot be true of the literal king of Tyre. And this is why this is a dual meaning here. There's something that he's alluding to. He's comparing the king of Tyre to some other being whom I don't think it's gonna take you very long to figure out who it is that he's talking about. So he says in uh, verse 12, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, I can tell you and assure you that the king of Tyre was not in Eden, <laughs> not in the garden of Eden, but this phrase here is used as a sense that basically the Lord is saying, you're like Satan, and therefore Satan is who he's talking about. It's, this, we learn clues as to who Satan was originally. Notice that when we start realizing this, that Satan was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It's so often that we think of the devil in a Halloween sense of some ugly, monstrous creature. It's the biggest lie the devil tells. Satan makes himself look like an angel of light because he used to be one. He knows what the angels of light look like because he was the chief number one, perfect in beauty. He was at the top of his profession, so to speak. That's why I did not like the movie, The Passion, because they show the devil as some hideous creature. That was unnecessary for them to have done that. Also, in that movie, they didn't actually present Jesus' divinity very much. They they presented the death of Jesus in The Passion as a tragedy, but it was a triumph because Jesus had set this up so that he could do something. But again... Uh, Historically Jesus did suffer, though, and that suffering was well documented. So the devil was in Eden, the garden of God. And then, then we read in verse 13 of, of Ezekiel 28: Every precious stone was your covering, the Sardius, the topaz, and diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Well, this refers to his clothing to maybe the light, uh, uh, the colorful light that his, his being was. He was a brilliant being. He was beautiful in every ways. And these are valuable jewels. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was a singer. He was musical, musically inclined. There's no coincidence that popular music becomes degraded, but taken over by evil constantly. It is, he wants to control music. He's still a musician. So he loves to take over music and entertainment. He he had it from the beginning. He he had in himself uh, an organ-like voice. And so God prepared him originally with these gifts and these abilities. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And and many scholars believe that, first of all, the cherub is a high archangel, okay? The cherubs are not just a lower rank angel. They are a high-ranked angel. And the cherubs that cover are those who were in charge of other operations, and perhaps he was the number one angel of all the angels. So he was not equal to God. He was not equal with Jesus Christ, but he certainly was above, we think, the other angels because he's the, the cherub who was over everything. He covered everything else too. So he was the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones, and we don't know what that means. So, But I, if you can imagine heaven... As a beautiful place of light and glory and shining things, I'm sure that the privileges and the access that he had was pretty well unlimited. He could go where he wanted to go and he had great uh, privilege in heaven. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And so something went wrong. So something was wrong with him. And that, of course, was his pride. That was his pride. We'll learn more here when we look at Isaiah. But iniquity was found in him. Uh, and notice in verse 16, we, we revolve back and forth here between the king of Tyre and the devil. But in verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. He revolves back to this view of kicking the, the this anointed cherub out of heaven. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you you. So you have these this this first uh, passage I wanted you to look at because it gives us some very interesting background on this angel that sinned. And the devil's the only one that seems to fit the biography here that particularly fits it according to the rest of, of the Christian Bible and according to tradition as well. Now let's go over to Isaiah because in Isaiah... Chapter fourteen, we also learn many things about him, and uh, that starts in verse twelve as well. So Isaiah fourteen and verse twelve, and and we read these words, similar, very similar, different prophets, Isaiah and of course Ezekiel. So here's. Uh, Isaiah lived earlier than Ezekiel, but I wanted to read it secondly. But so Isaiah, chapter fourteen, verse twelve: "How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning!" Now there are people who will complain about that 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 phrase, Lucifer, because it means basically a bright star, a shining star, a shining one, and the old English phrase was Lucifer, we get the word lucid so you can see clearly from it. So that phrase just became a name and we just named it that from Old English. His name literally just means the shining one, shining star, Uh, but Lucifer does mean brightness and so that's why we have kept that name as his name because it means what what it pretends to mean. So, oh Lucifer, son of the morning, how far, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart. And then we see, and I've heard preachers preach this, it's a very good sermon to preach, but there's several I wills that apply to the devil here. And notice each of these I wills, because this is these are the words that Satan himself said, that Lucifer said before he sinned. As he was sinning, he said these words, or he felt them in his heart or whatever. But he said in his heart, at least he said it, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. In other words, I'll be in charge of all the beings. On the furthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So he really thought that he was going to be number one. He's going to be above everybody, even God. He was self-deceived. And becoming self-deceived, he's still self-deceived. I think that once he started believing this, the bitterness of being kicked out of heaven led him to believe it even further. Remember that Lucifer, though he had the most talent, ability, superpowers compared to us, He is not all powerful and he's not all knowing. So since he doesn't know everything, he thinks he doesn't know all of God's plans. He thought that when he killed Jesus, he was doing something to help himself out. He did something to hurt himself because of that. Because it was God's plan for Jesus to die so that the people who were under Satan's dominion would be freed. And that's the miracle there. We'll talk more about that when we get to the the fall, when we talk about the fall of man. Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, that's the place of the dead, to the lowest depths of the pit. Very interesting. So the devil here is the one who we're talking about. And in fact, there's other statements here about the bad things that he does in his existence. It says, those in verse 16 who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? You know, the devil's, if you think the devil's not involved in politics, you don't have your eyes open because I'm telling you the devil's involved in politics for ages. Uh, The devil's trying to trip up leaders left and right. He's always trying to ruin governments. He's trying to get his power over people. He he does, but he knows what was said about him. He knows what was prophesied about him, and he is trying to fight it and trying to do something else. Verse 17, Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. Did you know the devil didn't give up the dead? They had to be released by the Lord. (laughs) It took the Lord to release them Uh, because technically speaking, until Jesus died, there was no payment for the sin. So they were not ultimately released. Uh, Now that doesn't mean he was punishing them all because the devil wasn't punishing them all, but the devil didn't want those people to be free And yet Jesus freed them. He freed them. So uh, all the kings of the nations, all of them, sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. So this this is a speaking of the ultimate demise of Satan, I believe. And I believe that when God's people rule with Jesus in his kingdom, we will be able to rule over the the creation. And we will have in in the future uh, the knowledge that Satan will just have to look at us and realize, hey, they are in charge and I'm not. And do you think Satan looks forward to that day? No. That's why he tried to prevent this from the very beginning. I think he had a premonition that uh, God was going to use man, and I don't think he liked it one bit. So so, so the theory there is, and, and certainly these two verses, I think, do a, a good job of giving us these two passages at least background, on Satan. Now, the exact moment of when he fell, we don't know, but I believe it happened sometime in this period at the early stages of creation. Now, having said that, I I want to talk about a second thing tonight, and that is the gap theory. Now, the gap theory is a, a strange theory It was originally proposed in 1814 by Thomas Chalmers. Now, that's over 200 years ago, but other scholars like G.H. Pember, D.G. Barnhouse, and G. Campbell Morgan also have agreed to this theory. Now, I have not agreed to the theory myself, but I wanted to tell you about it because it's interesting and it's not condemned in the Bible, so it may or may not be true. But here's what the gap theory says, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then something happened, the fall, the devil, whatever, but there was something that happened that disrupted everything, and this disruption and this evil could have been the rebellion of the angels with the devil and could have marred the surface of the earth as it said. The reason why people believe the gap theory that between Genesis 1:1 1, 1 and 1:2 1, something happened is that if you read the very first part of verse 2 it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep that there's confusion everywhere that that they don't that something's not right and and so God's got to intervene to do something to put order and light and things in here. So did God originally create it so that it was disordered? Or did something happen to the original creation? We don't know. I don't know it. And and the reason why I'm even suggesting the gap theory to you is not that I necessarily agree with it, but I do say it can fill in the, the understanding of it a little better. But just like the nature of angels, how many names angels do we even know? We only know the names of three of them officially. So how many millions of them are there? We don't know. They all have personalities. They all have identity. They all have worth and value to God. So they have lives that they spend doing whatever angels do. And we know very, very, very little about the physics and nature of angels. God did not give us that information. I think it's on purpose. So for us to spend too much time trying to figure out these unknown things, when there's so many known things that we do know, I think is unprofitable. So I'm just saying that to you is that the angelic world is a mysterious world where angels and demons are fighting each other. But I can tell you that it is possible that it was during this period when the fall of Satan happens. And it does make some sense because that's when we start seeing how things get shaped into order after that. Now, we continue now in verse two. So the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. So you have this, this the idea of the deep is like the abyss. And remember, in the book of Revelation, the abyss is where uh, the pit or wherever, that's after the, the lake of fire, but certainly some of the angels are put into the abyss, whatever that is. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have this reference to the Spirit of God who's present And his presence is very important through this process. Now, we learned in John 1.1 that Jesus was the creator, that the world was created through him, and that he was in the beginning with God and that he was God. We also know God the Father is there because it says right there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And generically, when we think of God, we think of God the Father. And then we have the Holy Spirit who's here, also doing his work. So you see, even in the scripture references to creation, the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Then God said, now this is the first quote of God in the entire Bible, and it says, let there be light, and there was light. So this is an important phrase, that God creates light for this universe. So that's important because darkness existed, but now there's light and God then takes the light and in the next verse, he saw the light, that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. Notice he didn't say the darkness was good, did he? But he said the light was good and he divided it from the darkness. Another reason why some people believe that this confusion came in after the rebellion. But that's just using our brains to think about it in some way to to infer. It doesn't mean it absolutely happened that way. But we at least know that the light was good and this light was uh, divided from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So this is before the sun has even been created. And remember in the future, in the book of Revelation, we learn that there won't be a sun in the future, in the distant future, that God will just be light himself. There won't be a night, there'll just be light and God will be the light for everybody. So it won't, we won't need these artificial or natural lights like we have now. And then he concludes, so the evening and the morning were the first day. But we're going to get to that part in a minute. But now let's think about light for a second. There's very few things more confusing and perplexing to scientists than light. And light's also one of the most fundamental things that we have in nature. We're taught in school, and I was taught that, for instance, that light, for instance, is a constant, that it's got a certain speed. I even remember that speed. I think it was something like 186,000 miles per second. So that's pretty fast. That's seven times around the earth in one second. This is the reason why on the internet, you can literally talk to someone around the world at the speed of light and pretty instant, because remember, that's seven times around the world in a second, so in a split second, you can instantly talk with people around the world. That's how fast light is, which is pretty incredible. And if you look at uh, the fact that light has been such an important thing that they've actually, they, it took a long time though before people could figure out how fast light travels. Now, it was the belief of ancient people and people like the scientists Johannes Kepler and Rene Descartes, who were very accomplished scientists, they believed that light was instant, that literally it didn't have a speed, it was just instantly illuminated at infinite distances. But this view became questioned when a guy named Olaf Romar in 1677 figured out that the speed of light was finite. It was not infinite. It was literally, it had a speed. And he estimated that that speed in 1677 was 307,600 meters per, uh, or kilometers per second. That's, That's just a number, which you can do what you want with. He did it, in a way that's pretty brilliant because you remember this is in 1677, not like they had any electronic gadgets or anything. And and he would observe with a telescope the eclipses of the moons of Jupiter. And you can actually see the moons of Jupiter with binoculars. So you don't need fancy telescopes to see the moons of Jupiter. Please tell me that if you ever get an opportunity and you see Jupiter in the sky, please take your binoculars, focus them, and look at Jupiter, you'll see the moons of Jupiter. There's, there's four or five of them that are big and you can actually see them. And the good thing about it is you watch them tonight, they're lined up a certain way, you watch them tomorrow, they're lined up a different way because they're moving. And this is what Galileo figured out that he figured they were orbiting Jupiter very interesting things. And and I think we don't consider the heavens enough with our own eyes uh, and vast majority of 20th century and 21st century people don't take time to actually look at the planets themselves and probably don't even know which planet is which. But they knew a lot of things back in the old days. Now, in 1729, a guy named Bradley confirmed the same thing that Olaf Uh, Romar had concluded. Uh, But in the uh, intervening time, uh, scientists just believed that the speed of light was a constant, that it, it just doesn't change, it has the same speed. But there's some problems with light. For instance, they realized that when light goes through water, it slows down. But when it gets to the other side of the water, it goes back to the same speed it was. That's very odd, you know, if you think about it, how it, it can do that. Uh, another thing happened, uh, there was a couple of scientists in, in our lifetime, I, I think they might be alive today, Barry Setterfield and Trevor Norman. These men did some calculations and they realized that something was not working out. And uh, Barry Setterfield is a Christian, a believing Christian from Australia. So what Sutterfield did is he said, Lord, how can these calculations be right if the speed of light is a constant? And it was like a voice told him, who said the speed of light is a constant? So he went back and looked at the data of multiple measurements by scientists through the ages of the speed of light. And he discovered something very interesting. In 1677, the speed of light was 307,600 meters or kilometers per second. And then in 1875, with a a smaller uh, uh, margin of error, they discovered it's 299,921 kilometers per second. And then... In 1983, it was 299.792 kilometers per second. Well, what's interesting about that is they started realizing that the speed of light is slowing down and it's measurable. And they realized by this distance that when they project it back in time, that at the time of Jesus, the speed of light should have been about 10 to 30% faster than it is now. Then at the time of Solomon, the speed of light would have been two times the speed it is now. And if you keep going back at the time of Abraham, it would have been four times the speed that it is now. That's that's pretty amazing. But that's not the most amazing thing. If we get back to before 3000 BC, remarkably, Based on the curve and the math, the speed of light would have been 10 million times as fast as it is now. That's pretty instant, that's pretty quick. And that can explain a whole lot about how the world could have been created in a short period of time over vast spaces. Because light, when it was originally created, was much faster but it's now slowing. But here's what the scientists have found is that the actual, everything to do with light, electromagnetism and uh, the electrons and just the fundamental forces of the wavelengths of our signals and everything else, it's slowing down over time. And this slowing down suggests that at some point it was set in motion and now it's slowing down. And that's called entropy. We have this, everything moves from a state of order in nature to disorder. It's like everything is slowing down and friction slows things down. The fundamental rules of the universe work this way. And because of these things, we learn that matter is neither created nor destroyed, today. We don't create matter. We don't destroy it. And energy is not uh, in any way created or destroyed. Uh, But we also know that in all the things we do, there's a price for it because there's no 100% perpetual machine. They advertise them, show them on TV. I saw, saw something recently where they had a video of a guy who had an umbrella He's sitting in a little wagon, and he has a leaf blower, and he's blowing that umbrella. He's just trucking right along, you know, and I said, oh, that's free travel. If you believe that that guy's really doing that, then you don't know science, because I guarantee you that was a rigged system, because it's not that easy. You, you can't do that any better than you can try. You can try to pick up yourself by your own shoelaces and see how far off the ground you raise yourself. Because you always got to have for every action, what? Reaction. A, a reaction, an equal and opposite reaction. So if you're propelling, you better have something you're pushing off from. It just doesn't work that way. But it's a cute little video. And, and, and that's the reason why I believe that it, we learn from science that... Light is very important. It's also paradoxical because if I was to ask you, is light a particle or is it a wave? What would you say? Uh, And you might say, I don't know the answer, which is a very wise statement. Because it acts, originally, Isaac Newton thought it was a particle, and for years, most people accepted it as a particle. But other people, I think Benjamin Franklin and others, said, nah, maybe it's acting like a wave. And then later measurements tended to prove that actually it acts like a wave. Uh, and so they introduced the wave theory. Uh, and, and a guy named Thomas Young, back in the 1800s, provided what's called the two-slit experiment. And it tended to prove that light acts like a wave. You know, when you have uh, water going through something and then you have a hole in, in some, some object, that water's going to keep going through that hole and then it's going to spread out like a wave. That's the way light works. However, when they applied the same experiment later on in the, like the 20th century, some weird things started happening with light. And, the, and, and they discovered that light doesn't always act like a wave. Sometimes it acts like a particle, too. And this is called a bundle of light called a photon. A very weird thing to even realize. But it doesn't fit with the equations. A guy named Max Planck, one of the greatest n- nuclear scientists and physicists ever, he made a mistake in applying uh, Boltzmann's equations, a, a famous mathematician. He applied these equations wrongly, but they worked out. And he was so perplexed that they worked out, but it suggested that light is actually some sort of bundle of little things that is going through. and uh, But it, it fits both the wave theory and the particle theory to show you how silly this whole thing is. In 1906, J.J. Thompson received the Nobel Prize for showing that light is a particle. In 1937, his son received the Nobel Prize for showing the opposite, (laughs) that it was a wave. So what is it? And the most bizarre thing about the whole experiment with light, and, and especially with electrons and things like this, was that They realized that when they did the measurements, it acted like a wave, but when they did, they observed it, it was a particle. In other words, the thing that changed it was just looking at it. So if you looked at it, it had this reality, but if you didn't look at it, it had a different reality. Now that should blow your mind. Just by looking at it, you see a difference from the result of the experiment. (laughs) You have changed the real life there by just looking at it, and you didn't do anything to it. That's bizarre. That tells us that this world is not simply a simple world that we can easily understand. There's something going on with this thing called light, and that God has set it at the center of what we are as human beings in this world. So light is a fundamental force. And uh, there is an illustration I want to use. Uh, it's called a hologram. By the time I was a child in the 1970s, holograms were being sold as crackerjack toys. You know, you ever see one of those little holograms? They, they had a little thing and you turn it a certain way, you can see three dimensions. Through that little two-dimensional little thing. That's a very bizarre thing. And it was invented not that long before I was born. Well, how do you create a hologram? Well, there's two ways that they used or two things they do to create it. They send a light, a laser light, that reflects directly on a three-dimensional object and it illuminates it. And that's reflected on a camera negative. Then they take another laser, send it by mirrors around to that same photo negative. So you got the reflected light of one laser hitting the object, another light going around it and hitting that. So when you develop the negative, you see nothing. (laughs) You literally see a bunch of just blur, which, Yeah, that's what it is. But when you shine the original laser that hit that on that negative, you see the image of the thing that was illuminated in three dimensions. It's amazing. Not only that, but when you cut that hologram in half, each part, you can still see the whole picture with both parts pretty miraculous stuff there. And the thing about it is, it takes the illumination of the original wavelength of the laser to create that hologram. If you don't have that, you can't do it. Well, the Bible is like light to our souls. It's like a hologram. Even you take just a small part of the Bible and you can literally be exposed to unbelievable amounts of truth through the light of the word. And the Bible is often confer- con- uh, compared to light. So you don't have to know everything. You can just have a small piece of it and it can open up to so many things. Because, But it has to be illuminated by the right light because if you get the wrong wavelength of laser on that hologram, it isn't gonna work. And don't you think the devil is always trying to share his wrong idea about the Bible all the time. So it is an amazing thing that God has done. And if you look at the first day, he creates this, this amazing thing called light, and then he says in it that the evening and the morning. I That's an odd thing. What's odd about the idea of evening and morning? The evening is first. The evening is first. That's very odd. Now the Jews today start their days at 6 p.m. in the evening, and uh, so they but 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 they do that because they're copying what <laughs> Moses originally wrote. But what we believe happened is that the word evening, erev, and the word morning, boker, we believe that these words were actually words for it went from disorder to order. So you went from formlessness. To an ordered status. So this happens every day and the evening and the morning. You went from disorder to construction. You did something new. The second day, from same thing. From you didn't have something then you have something. So I think that rather than just simply talking about the, the, that he's talking about a literal evening or literally literal morning, he's really talking about on that day, I think it's still a 24 hour day, but he's saying on the first part of the day, we started with nothing or didn't have something and then we added something, he adds something. And that's why he moves always from disorder to order. And that's true of every day, but not the seventh day, because he doesn't use the evening and morning on the seventh day, does he? Check it out. So by that time, he had done it. He had, he had created everything. So he was finished, didn't have the evening and the morning. He didn't need it, he had already finished. He didn't have the disorder and ordering because he didn't have to do anything else. And, and so we learn the first day is a day filled with all kinds of strange things, Maybe it is that the devil actually fell in in that gap between the first verse and the second verse, or sometime in the same vicinity of time. We also talked about the gap theory as a potential explanation of many things, and we also learned here today about the the miraculous nature of light and how we can't figure it all out even with our greatest scientists today. But it's certainly been very perplexing to some very smart people and very confusing to them. But it just shows you how remarkable the Lord really is.